I definitely think that a lot of people are in hospitality sort of thinking about wanting to have a life outside of work and not solely defining themselves by what they do for work and, and wanting to have, like you say, other interests and other hobbies and and wanting to be able to sort of have a bit of control over their life rather than constantly waiting on a Sunday night for their roster to come out for the next week and then trying to plan their week at the last minute. And I think that's a great thing. I think everybody should be able to do that. Dirty Linen is back after a couple of days break. A thank you to those very beautiful people who got in touch just to check that we were all okay over here. Honestly, I was just really busy working on a story um, about Joe Barrett, as it happens, one of the chefs we've actually been lucky enough to speak to on the podcast. And uh, I have to say, I've been, I've just found it really hard to concentrate and it took me longer to write the story than it normally would. I think my brain is a little bit foggy and I don't think I'm the only one experiencing that. Um, as we come to the end of another week, we find the whole Deep in the Weeds uh, team um, in lockdown. So we're spread across Melbourne where I am, Canberra where Huck is, who does the Deep in the Weeds, my brother podcast, and Sydney where producer Rob Locke is. So, yeah, interesting. We haven't all been in lockdown since more than a year ago. Very interesting times. But today we are heading to country New South Wales to somebody who is Luckily, thankfully, and at least not for now, not in lockdown, Charles Woodward is the chef at Sisters Rock Restaurant at Borodell. Charles, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So you're near Orange, which was recently in lockdown, and it feels like there's another big swathe of country New South Wales, which, um, as we love to say, plunges into lockdown every day at the moment. What are things like around the Orange area at the moment? Uh, very quiet, I think, is the, the best way to describe it. Um, we are suddenly realising um, how reliant we were on, on people coming out from Sydney to sort of keep the town vibrant and going, I guess. It's... Um, for us especially, uh, we rely heavily on that sort of tourism trade. Uh, so, yeah, even though we're not locked down, it, it almost feels like w we still are. Um, we're closing for extra services um, and trying to keep people busy around the estate rather than doing their sort of normal working week, I guess. So what was it like when Orange was officially in lockdown? I mean, was it was it much different to the way it is now? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we closed completely, um, obviously, with the guidelines. So um, we were sort of stuck at home. I live just outside Orange anyway, so I just kind of did my shopping and then was sat at home and took a bit of time to sort of sort my garden out, um, took some time to, to play with my kids and, uh, and walk the dog. So it was, it was quite relaxing and I was, but I think any more than a week and it, it would have been, um, maddening, I think is the, the way I'd describe it. I can't but, uh, sort of imagine what it's like for people in Sydney that are, are still locked down for that amount of time. It, it seems really quite crazy. Well, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to your speculate, speculative descriptions around, yeah, it's it's really hard yards for people who 
a lockdown for a long period, that is for sure, and especially in the hospitality industry where even if people are doing takeaway, it's just definitely not at the same pace for most people as they would be used to working. Uh, and it's, I think the uncertainty is something that a lot of people are grappling with and, yeah, finding finding particularly challenging. Um Charles, tell us uh, a bit about Sisters Rock and Borrowdale. Just like set the scene for us a little bit. Um, so we're on the side of Mount Canobles, which is a sort of ancient, now uh, thankfully extinct volcano. Um, so we're about halfway up. We're just over a thousand meters. Um, we predominantly are a small country restaurant um, and vineyard. We grow uh, Gewurz Riesling, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot, and a small amount of uh, Pinot Meunier uh, as grapes that um, we get made in the region uh, and pretty much are exclusively available through either our cellar door or the restaurant. Um so we're easterly facing, so we get a really nice sort of gentle sunshine in the morning as you come through, and then in the afternoons it, it cools down pretty quickly. Um, but it's today is a, a sort of beautiful, cloudless uh, winter day, which is is what I love out here. Is the weather, even though it's quite cold, uh, not sort of <laughs> there's no beach. It, it's just this beautiful rolling countryside. Um, and we're on um, kangaroos down next to the restaurant, uh, kookaburras, uh, sheep, the, the whole sort of proper countryside living, I guess, is the best way to describe it up here. It's, um, it's beautiful. Uh, we have persimmons, cherries, uh, over 100 different types of uh, heritage variety apples, 20 different varieties of plums. So there's uh, there's a lot going on on the estate um, at any sort of given time of the year. There's always something growing and that you're able to sort of access very easily for the kitchen. It's it's uh, it's pretty exciting to be out here and having seen it go through for a whole year and and watch the seasons change. It's uh, it's really remarkable to see that. Whereas Sydney kind of gets a little bit warmer. And then get slightly not as warm. Um, Melbourne is obviously changeable every day as to how the weather's going to be. But here it's quite reliable and it's nice to see the sort of changing seasons coming through. It's um, yeah, an amazing place to sort of live and work, I think. Mm, that's great. It sounds very idyllic, <laughs> speaking from locked down Melbourne. Um, so you've obviously worked, you know, in Victoria and in Sydney as well as country New South Wales. Just give us a bit of a... a Go through your CV for us, Charles. Tell us where you've worked. Uh, so I spent uh, about seven years working in London. Um, started out uh, a restaurant called Launceston Place in, in London and worked there for two years, and that was really my grounding. Then went to a few other places in London, um, came over, uh, did the first part of my working holiday visa at the Lake House in Dalesford, uh, then moved to Melbourne, worked on Ligon Street at the Roving Marrow. Um, and then from there, came up to the northern beaches of Sydney, worked at Cottage Point for two years, uh, and then sort of looked to move on to do other things and, and bounced around a few really good restaurants in Sydney. But 
just couldn't sort of settle back into to city life after being out in a cottage point is pretty much the furthest uh, point away from the CBD with while still being in what is considered metro Sydney, I guess. So after that, I kind of got the, the bug for the um, country New South Wales, I guess. So as soon as an opportunity came up to, to move out to Orange, as soon as I came out and saw Borodell, I was kind of hooked and um, I'm really keen to do it. Uh, so since last July, I've been out here and um, not looked back really. Is it the is it the connection to produce that you love so much? Um, I think that's definitely part of it. I think it's the for being a chef, uh, it's the change of pace um, from sort of waiting around and, and doing those sort of hardcore hospitality hours that you have to do especially sort of in the big cities like uh, London and, and Sydney where people go out and they expect to be able to eat and get a table at 9, 9.30 and, and take their time and, and have a, a degustation menu and um, not be rushed to coming out to sort of um, country New South Wales and, and being where it's, it's a bit more relaxed and, and people are more open to almost a dialogue between sort of the restaurant and the customer where if you, you speak to them and, and sort of say like, Oh, we, we're only open for lunch that day. They're far more accommodating. Most people are on some sort of break or holiday while they're here. So that's definitely been a big part of it. And, and also obviously the produce being that close, much closer to it. Um, we have our own uh, beef that we produce here. We have a, um, an abattoir out at Canalja that, that does our beef and prepares that for us. We bring it back to the restaurant. We have a smokehouse on site, just the space to be able to sort of experiment with things and be able to, with a bit less pressure, I think is um, a massive plus for moving out of one of the cities once you get to that point uh, in your career where you've sort of done that, gained the knowledge, and then it, it's much. I find it much easier to put that into practice out here it's interesting you know a lot of people have gone through this pandemic period and they've they've realized how hard they've been working and that they just haven't stopped and you know chefs or other other people working in hospo have have been able to spend more time with their kids perhaps or you're doing you know fulfilling other interests whether it's some sort of hobby or fitness or whatever it is And, and I think a lot of people are you know going back into restaurant life as it reopens and wondering if they can sustain a bit more balance. You obviously, you know, made a move that you felt would give you a bit more, I guess, balance and perspective. I mean, do, do you reckon that it would be possible even in the cities to work in hospitality but, uh, yeah, not work yourself into the ground? <laughs> um I, th- I think it is possible. I think it's much more difficult and I think it's um... – uh, I still have friends who work there uh, in in Sydney and in Melbourne and you speak to them and they're sort of like, oh, I wish I could get the hours that you've got or, um, but they don't want to live outside of Sydney. They don't want to give up the things that, that Sydney has to offer sort of um, a nightlife and, and going out to, to bars is, is probably um, a big loss that you have moving out here. I mean, it's, it's, the Woolies closes at nine o'clock. So if you miss that, then it's pretty much a ghost town after that. Um, 
and I guess there's a balance between the two of where you're at in in life, I think, as well, as to where whether it's the right move for you. But I definitely think that a lot of people are in hospitality sort of thinking about wanting to have a life outside of work and not solely defining themselves by what they do for work and, and wanting to have, like you say, other interests and other hobbies and and wanting to be able to sort of have a bit of control over their life rather than constantly waiting on a Sunday night for their roster to come out for the next week and then trying to plan their week at the last minute. And I think that's a great thing. I think everybody should be able to do that. Um, and it's something that has to happen, I think, to to get more people into the industry and, and to be keen to do it because there is, as everyone knows, a huge shortage of um, not just chefs and, and back of house, but good front of house people who are not burnt out and are still keen to learn and sort of move on to different things and, and be more rounded individuals, I think. And that's only good for the industry if we can get that going. How do you think this whole sort of supply chain can be improved so that it works better for everyone? I think that's a, that is a, a really great point about things like Sundays people I think people a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that like you have things like penalty rates and the these people have to or these businesses have to pay and we're not talking about the the bigger uh, larger sort of uh, groups and stuff but singular restaurants that are really struggling to make it in um in Sydney as standalone places that are maybe family owned or whatever, they're, they're having to pay staff uh, extra on a Sunday. And I think it needs to be sort of more widely known that the sort of costs involved in, in running a restaurant, people will say, well, you know, I can get a steak for, for $5 from Aldi. Why are you charging me $50 for a main course like that seems and when you put it into the basics like that yeah it's a, it is a markup but there's all the other things that go into um, doing that and it's I think people there's responsibility on both sides that if you're the, you have to offer value for money and I don't think that necessarily comes from what you're putting on the plate it comes from uh, the warmth that you sort of give people as they arrive and, and throughout the meal and, and make it worth uh, their while coming out to you. And, and people also have to realize that the costs involved in sort of running a restaurant or are, are huge and the toll it takes on people to keep that going um, it is massive. And I think it has to be a bit more understanding from, from both sides, I guess. And the way that we find staff and train staff has to improve. But at the same time, some of that cost is, is going to be passed on to diners. And I think people are willing to pay for quality uh, over quantity in a lot of instances. Um, and I think that's what we kind of need to move towards for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the more the people, I think the fact that dining has become, dining out has become so ubiquitous has, it means that people don't see it anymore as a special occasion. Therefore, they don't see it as something that they need to pay special occasion prices for. And yeah. as much as we all love going out for a quick bite, uh, it perhaps does um, devalue the all the different um, elements that need to go into creating that experience for people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can remember 
when I was a kid going out to a restaurant with my parents was like such a big deal. Um, and it would happen like it, it always was a special occasion. There was never sort of a Wednesday night where we were just going out for something to eat. And, and I grew up in the UK as in a pretty middle class family that's, um, but it was always somebody's birthday or um, a special event when we were going out to eat and it would be um, quite a, an occasion. So, yeah, and, and now I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, we'll go out and eat um, like once or twice a week sometimes, whether it's just sort of grabbing breakfast or going out for dinner. Um, and now sort of with lockdown, a lot of places – have sort of upped their takeaway sort of offering, which makes it even more enticing. And that's, um, there's a place in Orange, Mr. Lim's, that does amazing sort of Korean food as, as takeaway. And it's it's pretty difficult to sort of turn that down on your way home when you know that you, you're just in time to sort of grab some of that and, and head home with it. It's But it, it does need to become, I think, more of an occasion thing and something that people are... are it's not the norm, but at the same time, there's such a huge number of restaurants opening everywhere. I'm not really sure how you sustain the model of, of, of wanting to do that and all these restaurants opening and trying to staff all these restaurants uh, in Sydney and in regional New South Wales. I know there's a lot of places looking to, to open here because there's been such an influx of sort of um, – people from Sydney realizing that Orange is is just a, a really easy three and a half hour car drive away um, or a short uh, airplane trip even. Um, so it's I'm not sure how you balance that between all these new openings and, and lots of things that people want to do and, and not being able to get staff from overseas is a huge one um, and a, a huge sort of well that we were drinking from in Sydney, especially like these backpackers and people doing six month working holiday visas that are now just not there. And I know that that's causing problems for a lot of people. And especially when Sydney comes out of lockdown, it definitely will again, for sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you were one of those people. So you, you well know how, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. And, you know, I know at Lake House, there was always a really nice flow of working holiday visas. And some of those went on to be sponsored and it was, yeah, really essential to the running of so many businesses. And I think especially in the regions. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting, all those things that you say, Charles, and you, you touched on so many topics. It's interesting that you say, you know, you, you're guilty of going out to eat for something quick. Cause of course we love the cafes and we love Mr. Lim and we, you know, we want all those places to be there, but it's exactly as you say, it's how do we balance uh, the fact that people want to open those kinds of places and the fact that people want to eat at them with a, a sort of some kind of, um, yeah, just that the costs and work out for everybody, you know, for the people that are eating there and for the people that are working there and, of course, for the producers down the line. Uh, it's um it's such a complicated ecosystem and we love the complexity of it because it gives us all kinds of different restaurants and cuisines and, and price points. But, yeah, it does feel like um, it all has to be, everything just has to be raised a little bit and um, and valued a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think valued is definitely the, the right term. Um, 
because it is hard. And it, and I think it's good, especially like out here, we have great producers who are, um, it, it's so difficult to not sort of rely on going. I know some of them definitely send a lot of produce straight to the Sydney markets because they know what they're going to get. They know that it's going to be taken on by a wholesale company and they don't have to worry about sort of getting it to the logistics of bringing it out to somebody else and, and dropping it there. So I think there's there's so many sort of issues facing it and, and it, I think there has to be a bit of um, sort of blue sky thinking behind how we we do that. We're, I know at Borida we've looked at it and sort of said, well, we, we've got a lot of land here, so we're going to try and set up a, a small farm. Our herb garden is uh, currently sort of being pulled out and, and replanted, uh, looking towards the spring and the summer and, and uh, getting all the soil turned over and seedlings going into sort of uh, hot houses and stuff so that we can try and cut costs by growing our own. But I, that's obviously... Uh, something that's very easy to do when you're on a, a large estate like we are here and, and something that's great and I've always wanted to do and every sort of chef is really keen to do it. But how do you do it when you're in Sydney and, and there's um, not not that option, I guess? Uh, it's a difficult sort of call as to how you balance that, um, that need for quality plus uh, over the – the the money that you spend on those products to to get that to the people at the the price point and the the quality point that you want to deliver to i guess and i guess also you know chefs are so used to working to working with consistency you know it's when people are under such pressure and menus uh you know don't necessarily change that much then they want to be able to tick a box on a list of produce and get you know, exactly, know exactly what they're getting. But I think, you know, perhaps that's not quite the right way to think about produce. It's a huge thing. It, it, one of the things that absolutely amazed me was um, when we had apple season out here and trying to cook a tartar tan, an apple tartar tan from one day to the next with apples that were coming off the tree day by day, and we'd literally get one day where the apples were perfect and they'd set and that you'd turn out this amazing tartan and then others where maybe if the rain had come um, and they'd taken on a lot of water, it, it was crazy how the, the produce that wasn't coming out of um, like a, a box that was being brought to your back door and you were kind of going through these apples and just, it was almost like guesswork trying to get them to work. And, and I'd never dealt with produce like that before. And it was crazy. And, and it really sort of frustrated me at first, but then I realized that it's, it is how it should be almost that everything shouldn't come in and look exactly the same. And all your, your bell peppers shouldn't be exactly the same. And, um, your pears are not always going to be that perfect sort of conference pear shape. And, uh, so yeah, that's definitely a thing that we've had to adapt to where we run out of, um, something and we have to move on to something. So we've really started to try and, um, make the most of the produce we have here by 
moving into sort of ferments and uh, pickles or like make, turning stuff into sorbets that can be kept and, and bases and so that we have a product that we can rely on going forward and make the most out of it because it, it is uh, far more uh, sort of volatile produce that you're getting when you're just picking them in. And, and I was really surprised and I, I guess I never really thought about it until I got out here when you just have things turn up at the back door of the kitchen every day and you go in and you know that like all the carrots are going to be the same size and they're going to cook in this amount of time. And, um, it makes your cooking, I guess, uh, simpler in a lot of ways because you, you have to pay far more attention to what the produce that you have in your hands and how it's going to react to what you do with it. Um, which is a huge eye opener for me coming out. Uh, here especially where we have a lot of produce coming straight out. But, yeah, I mean, that is so interesting and really just feels you know, like that tart to tan. It's like that could be a turning point in your whole life where you start to relate to produce in that different way. Um, it's really, really, it's really amazing. And I suppose it's it sort of relates to all the things we've already been talking about, you, I sort of feel like you were a bit frustrated, but then you kind of dealt with it. Like in a kitchen where you, you had a, you've got 150 booked and you just need to get stuff done and perhaps it's not, you know, the, the head chef as you are dealing with it, but it's someone, you know, a bit down the line who's freaking out because they just, you know, they've got, a, they've got all these jobs they need to get done. It, I think it's, it's um, they're just, I think you need the time to attend to those kinds of things, don't you? That you need the time to relate to produce when you're thinking about it as this this living ingredient, not just you know something that's on a list or you know a, an item in a recipe. It's and then it also relates to this whole idea of communication and conversation with the diner. That the diner has to be more understanding that um, you know the menu changes because the produce changes. It's um, we, we've got to, we've sort of got to break out of some of these strictures that that we've put ourselves in. Yeah, I, I've been that I've been that guy in a sort of one or two Michelin star kitchen where something just doesn't react for whatever reason because your supply has changed or it, and it's moved to something that's imported rather than a sort of um, local product and it, it does something that you're you're completely not expecting and you're literally working down to sort of looking at the clock and going, okay, I know, I know that I'm on, on time now. And then it just throws your whole morning out and you're looking around and, and you're trying to sort of work out how you can save your day and, and not have somebody turn around and sort of scream at you and, and go. So yeah, it's, it's definitely that, um, a different way of thinking from that. And as you move up and become sort of, uh, a head chef or move into a position where you're making those decisions. I think it's really important as well um, going on that point to sort of remember where you came from and how it was sort of being that guy who's trying to work a section. And I'm for sure I've had to sort of stop and think about that myself, especially with the, those sort of issues now that we face here and, and go, um, you just have to sort of make a change and sort of stand there and you do have to communicate to diners and make sure that you have a, a great working relationship with your front of house team so that you can go to them and, and explain to them and they can then put that 
to a diner and say, this has changed. We're going to do this now. Um, it's one of the reasons that we have um, a menu that we print every day rather than sort of saving copies and sending it off to a, a printing company so that we can print it and, and make sure that anything that we need to move on from one day to the next uh, is completely possible. Because, I mean, really... <laughs> As a diner, I feel like that's why I would go to a restaurant. It's because I want to know, you know, what is the expression of this place on at this time? Um, so, there, I mean, there's that way of approaching dining. I guess there's there's so many other ways that we've built up in our dining culture, you know, like going somewhere for some kind of famous dish where you just, they always have to have the, I don't know, the snapper or whatever it is and um sometimes a year maybe that snapper comes from further and further away what you know just um but they always need to have it on the menu i mean so we sort of we get ourselves into trouble with some of these things don't we yeah for sure and i think it's uh like one of the reasons that a lot of places are sort of dropping the a la carte and moving on to these degustation menus is so that it's you've got a bit more flexibility there because everybody's getting the same thing and you don't have to be able to, people are expecting it to change a bit more often and probably people aren't going to those restaurants like every month and, and wanting the same thing. They're going there um, and they are more of those special occasion restaurants where people are going every few months um, and seeing things change and there's not the pressure on you to sort of have five different mains that you're constantly going through and have these ebbs and flows of where it can depend on the weather or who's coming in as to whether you're going to sell like 20 card for a 50 cover lunch service or five card for a 20 uh, 50 cover lunch service so having that degustation menu and i think it's a huge part of why they're becoming more and more popular for restaurants to run it is that lack of wastage and, and making the ease of sort of ordering and keeping on top of your uh, sort of uh, what you're holding in, in the fridges and in your walk-ins, um, I guess, which is, uh, I guess it, it's got uh, pluses and minuses for everybody. We've, We've narrowed our menu down um, to a four-course a la carte where there's a set first course and three entrees, three mains and three desserts just because it's it's not viable now to have these huge menus with sides and uh, like five or six mains on. We, you just can't hold that sort of produce and hope that you just get through it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think the fact, you know, having some, having your own cattle and working with the abattoir, does that, that must make a big difference to the way that you think about beef? Yeah, it's, it's huge. The, the way that where you, you try and hit on uh, ways of, of using your sort of secondary and tertiary cuts and, and how can you make them as appealing as possible Um over sort of everybody wanting to go get a sirloin or a, a piece of fillet um, and making the most of those other pieces, like uh, making sure that um, you, you're making stocks from bones and, and things like that. And, and we, we get whole pigs now. Um, we make sure that everything gets used out of those, whether it's 
we've started to make our own salami that in our new sort of wine bar, we'll be able to serve our own like house-made charcuterie. We have a, a smokehouse on site. So from that point, it's, um, it's really useful for us to have all those things on hand already and be able to do that. Um, but you do have to, it takes a lot more thought and a bit more planning. And there will be the times when you sort of sit down at the beginning of the week and go, what am I hoping to do? How am I going to make this work? And, and how can I get the best out of every, every cut that comes through the door and sort of treat it as, um, the tertiary and secondary cuts in a way that, that makes them as valuable as your primary cuts of, of sort of steak beef, I guess. I mean, I suppose in a way the value in those cuts is that you do have to put that thought and perhaps, you know, a few extra steps into making them really delicious. Yeah. And again, I think that's a big part of being able to work with your front of house team and sort of take the time to educate them about why it's so great that you've got this chuck steak that you've maybe like brined and, and barbecued or we use pork neck as um, a really good example of that where it's marinated in um, a koji that's made locally um, to help break it down and, and that sort of you then want to pass that on to your diners because the people are coming here to sort of have something different and wanting to see something that they may be haven't seen before or, or definitely wouldn't sort of uh, eat at home. So it's really important that you can convey that message and, and why it's I – I definitely feel more so now than I did sort of five years ago that it's really important to have a really good working relationship with whoever's working front of house with you and because they're the sort of middleman who's conveying that what you're trying to do and, and what your ethos is onto the people who are coming in and, and sitting in the restaurant and, and eating the food and ultimately paying the money for it. Yeah, it's definitely so important, especially when there is such a story behind what you're serving. You really want to get that across. So how are you finding it for staff um, over there at Borodell? <laughs> um, it, it's a challenge. Uh, I'm really lucky that I've... Um, got a, a really solid kitchen team uh, Marcello um, I worked with him briefly while I was at Pillow at Freshwater and, and he'd been there for a while and um, he was looking for a change so when I moved he came with me um, and I'm, I'm very grateful that the way that uh, Giovanni was was so gracious in in letting him move with me and, and didn't hold that grudge against me for it. Um, so, and then I have uh, a, a great apprentice and a, another guy who was already here when I started, and they've stayed with me. And I think it's um, it's really important that you can keep people like that together. And then front of house. Um, we we really struggle for front of house staff at the moment. We we have some great people, but there's just not a, enough of them around. Um, and again, it, it's maybe taking people who who don't have that hospitality background and, and trying to work with them and um, upskill them. I guess um, is sort of of one way. And you, you've got to put the work into people. Uh, you're not gonna 
have people turn up who are already superstars or very rarely um, out here, uh, especially when we're that little bit out of town. Um, it, in a small town makes it even harder, I guess, than some of the restaurants that are in town. Um, but yeah, you definitely have to put the work or not the work into people, but I guess put the, the effort into offering them training and making it, um, uh, make them want to stay and want to work and, and want to buy into what you're trying to do and, and get them on board as well. We try and um, teach them, get them in to eat in the restaurant with their partners or their family and make sure they sort of understand what it's like to be a diner um, in a restaurant uh, like ours. And then we try and do some um, work around the estate with our sort of staff and, and do some outings where we go and see some of the producers that we we do use and, and are around Um like Pioneer Brewery, we're going to go out there and sort of get to know those guys, take the front of house and the kitchen team out there and sort of have a day out of work where it, you have that sort of bond and everybody becomes a bit more familiar with each other and becomes, um, I hate the thing of calling uh, your the people you work with a family because um, it's such a cliche, but you just become, I guess, even um, friends that you want to sort of help each other and you can come together as a, towards a common goal of sort of improving the whole offering and making it somewhere that people want to come to work. And it's not a sort of chore because I know I've definitely worked in places where, I'd wake up in the morning and sort of dread having to go to work. And that's the last thing I want for anybody that sort of that works here for sure. Yeah. Well, that all sounds really nice. It sounds like a good place to work. Um, Charles, Sydney's really in the thick of it. And you, you mentioned that it's uh, that's a large part of your trade. I mean, how did, how do you see the next few months rolling along? Um, it, it's, it's really, uh, it's worrying to be honest we were already planning before all this happened to to sort of go to lunches only and open for uh an extra day we were normally doing thursday to sunday lunch and dinner and we were going to cut our dinner services and open on mondays thinking that there was a market where people who came here from Sydney might have taken that Monday off and were, were looking for somewhere to have lunch before they leave. And now that's sort of thrown a massive spanner in the works. We do a lot of functions. We're a, a really popular wedding venue. And obviously people are just postponing them and, and postponing them and, and not knowing when they're going to be able to do them. I, I heard today that there's talk of the lockdown not lifting, lifting till December. So um, it's really uncertain times. And, and we've got a lot of projects and a lot of things we want to get done that maybe would have waited till next year that we're kind of pushing through now, I guess. But there's only so long you can keep that going without the money coming into the restaurant. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's worrying. And I, saw, I, I do wonder how whether we can carry on like this and, and we can keep just – 
locking down and, and saying, well, don't do anything while nothing seems to really change in terms of numbers and, and what's happening with it. And the sort of poor flow of information about vaccines and who's eligible, how you can get them and, and where they are. I think there needs to be a much clearer message around that um, for sure would help us. What's the vaccines um, situation in Orange? Is it is it easy to go get jabbed? Um, it it's I've been told that I would have to wait twice now. So I've, I've got to say no. I know there are some people that uh, have been the the more um, vulnerable groups have uh, sort of they're getting through them, but um, yeah, it's, it's certainly not. Uh, a system that I think has been uh, rolled out well um, at all. There, there's not um, off the top of my head, I wouldn't have known where to go to get a vaccine or, or how to access one. And I think there definitely needs to be a better rollout ac- across the whole of New South Wales. And the way that the message is sort of um, put to people needs to be much clearer Um so that there isn't this panic and this wondering about what, is it safe or not. It's it's certainly something that needs to be done. And uh, but the way it ha- has been done, I think, is 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 terrible, to be honest. Yeah, well, you're certainly not the only person in regional New South Wales that I've heard that from. So um, I hope that they do sort it out and make the um, the access and the messaging really clear because it's um, so important that everybody who can get vaccinated does get vaccinated. Um, Charles, if um, if I was lucky enough to come and eat with you in the next little while, uh, what's what's something that you would feed me? Uh, I think at the moment we've got um, we've got a great little vegetarian uh, dish on as an entree that I'm uh, I'm really keen to sort of make sure that um, our vegetarian dishes are something that's really stand out. We use a, a goat's curd from uh, Yanai Dairy in Lithgow uh, with a, a confit egg yolk um, from a, uh, an egg producer called Carabine uh, Pasture, which are, are hands down the best eggs I've ever tasted. Um, so we comfy those in a local olive oil uh, and that goes with roasted Jerusalem artichokes and then a, a green juice, which is um, sort of the trim from a lot of the the herbs that we use in other dishes and uh, nettles and and sort of greenery we can pull from around the estate and then sort of seasoned with uh, cider apples that are juiced for their sweetness to balance sort of the bitter, spicy flavours of the greens. Uh, And then um, a crumb made from a house-smoked guanciale from uh, pig's that are supplied by our accountant. So it's a real sort of local dish with lots of um, uh, different parts um, for for us to do uh, that really shines out. So I think that's a great dish. Ah, uh, I l- love the sound of it. It just totally sounds like the region on a plate. Although I would just ask you not to put the guanciale on if someone is actually vegetarian. Uh, yeah, Sorry, yeah. We, <laughs> we do a rye crumb that's uh, for the vegetarian and it's it's just moved over. So our rye crumb that we make in-house is, is turned around to, for the vegetarians, absolutely. 
Um, it just sounds so good. I mean, I just, everything that you're saying, it's just, you know, obviously there's such reverence for the local producers and then there's the stuff that you're doing um, on on the property as well. It just sounds so good. So even more motivation for uh, us to get out of lockdown. Um, I reckon it's going to be a while before I'm allowed to come to New South Wales, Charles, but it's been so great to chat to you today. Thank you so much for your insights and perspective on the industry. It's been really fantastic to have a chat. Awesome. That's great. Thanks a lot, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.